Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Today, I have a great guest. I have a great leader. For me, like I follow very few leaders nowadays, but my guest is one of them. I truly believe in her leadership. It's a big honor for me to welcome you, Panilla Baralt, the Secretary General at UNICEF Sweden to Urbanistica podcast. Hey and welcome. Thank you, Mustafa. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here. I've been longing for this pod. <laughs> yes, me too. I'm, I'm following you on the social media. I'm following the projects that UNICEF Sweden is doing amazing. So like huge respect and love to you and to your team. Thank you so much. I will bring it back to them. Absolutely. How are you doing, Prinilla? Well, I mean, it's so sunny and wonderful outside. So that makes me happy. Uh, and then, like you said, there are so many exciting things going on right now, not least in making children's voices heard in a more systematic way. So I feel hopeful. That's amazing. And also I, I hear some birds, like, is it outside? Yeah. Like, Yes, I had to open the window and take off my jacket. It's very warm <laughs> for a change, for a change. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So, so Penilla, welcome to Urbanistica one more time and tell us about yourself. Give us a highlight about you and tell us about your passion. I think my passion is uh, to make a difference. I don't really know where it comes from, but that's really what drives me. Uh, to make a difference, and especially for people that we perhaps do not see often in podcasts or on television or in newspaper, but to make a difference for for the majority of the people, that is. Is is like a specific group of people or? I think when, when we have to prioritize, and we always have to prioritize, I want to prioritize children and young people, because what happens to you in your childhood is so important for the rest of your life. And so if a child can be more happy today, that child is going to be a more happy adult as well. So I prioritize children and young people. Mm, makes sense. And tell us more about you, Penilla. Where did you grow up? What did you study? I, I was born in um, with uh, in a sort of one room apartment in in Stockholm. I mean, I think I was born in the hospital, but <laughs> my parents were <laughs> there, and uh, they were not completely uh, finished with their studies and things. Uh, so I had a very cozy uh, upbringing. I think I think children like to be in a small place to have the parents close to them. Uh, and I also remember the the evening lights in the apartment because it was in Mastuget in Gothenburg, and from there you have the sunset and this kind of red light shining in uh, in the evening. So so I kind of remember that light. I imagine I do anyway. Uh, but then we moved outside Gothenburg, um, and I grew up more on the countryside. 
And uh, I remember, you know, bicycling a lot, <laughs> bicycling and sailing and uh, being taken out into the forest uh, with my parents who were, we were doing sausages, you know, grilling sausages. That was our, <laughs> one of our main activities. <laughs> I, I, I was lucky. I was lucky. Mm. And like you, you have a long career working with children's rights in different positions, and now you're like at UNICEF Sweden. So ha- has it been a clear path for you from the beginning? Actually, I, before this pod now, I was thinking a little bit, and it is quite interesting that the first educations that I applied for, uh, you know, when I finished the gymnasium, uh, it was a doctor, I mean, the first of my list, I had medical doctor, and second, I had architect. So mm. now I feel, wow, Pernilla, it's perfect. You're working now with child-friendly cities, and it must be a combination <laughs> of my inner wishes as a child. So I thought I wanted to become a doctor, and I didn't get into any of these trainings. Uh, that's why I ended up studying uh, French. <laughs> so I started actually going abroad. And I think um, by going abroad, um, perhaps made me realize that it's more people uh, I want to work with uh, as, a, as a first. So I got interested in international relations, uh, international law, uh, children's rights. So I took a different path. Wow. But if you go back in time, will you like redo your path or retake the path that you had on your to do list or your list? like be a medical doctor or architect? I mean, I, I would have loved to be any of those two. You know, it was the system who, who failed me or I failed. <laughs> but I'm very, very happy where I am. And I get to work with wonderful doctors and wonderful architects. So, so, so I'm happy. No, but I think what, um, what I had with me and I, what I want every child to, to have is to, to believe that anything is possible. And even if you want something and you fail, there is all, you know there is always another door and another way. And I think somehow I, I and I have to thank my parents for that. And I really believed in my in myself. Um, so I, I was kind of daring, uh, brave as a child. I saw people on television. I wrote them letters. I. I thought, you know, I could do that or she should listen to me. And uh, <laughs> finally, one actually did <laughs> got me my first job uh, in Brussels. So, yeah. Yeah, because uh, now also recently, many young people listen to the podcast. And this is a great opportunity also like to ask you as a leader, what is your advice for the young people? Like, do they really need to decide what they will be like from now? Or should they like do the journey, enjoy the process and see what life what, do you, what is like your advice to them? I think it's very important to be sort of passionate about what you do. And I, I have three daughters. I, I fully understand that not every child is passionate about school. But once you can choose a little bit more your direction, choose something which, is, which you really like more than being too strategic. I think that you are only going to excel uh, in something that you really like. But I mean, like me, I wanted to be a doctor and architect and I choose something else. And that, that also worked out fine. So, so I think, you know, don't underestimate yourself. That is my biggest advice. Don't underestimate yourself and make contacts with the people or the workplaces where you would like to be or try, try at least uh, something where you would like to be. 
Yeah, exactly. Because this is what, what I'm also telling, like, especially the student, like, reach out to people, to professionals. They will be more than happy to welcome you, to talk to you, to ad- give you advice. So don't be afraid. Like, the world is really open to you. Yes. No, I can see that now on, on LinkedIn or, or Instagram or in the social media channels that I use. It makes me so happy when I get from a student a message they heard something or they want to know something or they wonder if they could have an internship. And I think, wow, you know, this young person is all, almost there, you know, just by reaching out. Exactly. Like it, it's, it's a mindset. So what is your favorite social media application? Because I know you're very active on social media, which is really great because you're close to the young generation as well. I think um, to make a difference, I, I, for me, I think Twitter is good because I imagine on Twitter there are a lot of decision makers or influential people. So I like to be there and some it's a mixture of educating the crowd of what's happening and what's important according to me. So I like Twitter because it's short, it's fast. Uh, but then LinkedIn, I think for young people, I think, I think, you know, I met you through LinkedIn. Because I thought, wow, this is a great guy. I want to I want to get to know him. <laughs> so I wrote to you. So I do think that LinkedIn is a fantastic network of building partnerships and networks. Mm, that's very that's very true, especially now when it's everything is digital like and we are at home. So LinkedIn is a kind of arena where we can network and talk to each other. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then, of course, I mean, if I could just choose with my heart, I, I love Instagram because I, I love I love photos and people and art Um, so that's for another part of me (laughs) (laughs) exactly so let's start talking about the the united nations convention on the rights of the child so 30 years ago 32 years ago actually when the world leaders made a historic commitment to the world's children by adopting the convention so my question to you, like, what would you say has been the impact for children around the world? I think it was, it was a very important decision that a few leaders took to, to kind of recognize children as human beings with the same rights. Uh, Sweden was actually a very a driving force for getting this convention into place. And I would like to mention, for instance, Jan Eliasson, but there were others So I think that was a brave moment. And I wish we could see more sort of brave, forward-looking moments like we had when the convention was created. And I think that is the biggest difference, that children, the way we look at children, uh, we are not there yet, but we start to look at children not as a child attached to a parent or to an adult, but an individual with his or her own rights so it's the way we look at children, I think, which has been the most sort of groundbreaking change with the convention. Yes, and Panila, we have articles in this convention, but there are four main fundamental articles. So can you please share with us which are these four? So the first one is non-discrimination because of children, because we, we know, you and I and everyone, that children as a group are discriminated but in the group of children we have children that are very unequal in their rights to other children so that that is a fundamental principle that we don't talk about children in general we talk about every single child has the same rights 
if you have if you have a mental illness if you if you can't move around like the other child if you live in a poor community if you have a different color of your skin if you have if you are a girl that is the fundamental principle that we talk about every single child has the same rights so that is very important the second is that every child has the right to not only to survive but to develop and thrive. We in UNICEF, we save children's lives every day, but that isn't enough. That is only a part of a child's right. A child has the right to survive and to develop and thrive. So that is, that is also fundamental core. The third one is that the convention says that we have to look into the best interest of the child. What is the best interest of this child, uh, Shana, who lives uh, with a parent uh, who beats her? If I'm the social secretary, I cannot generalize how I'm going to help this child. I have to talk to her and find out what is the best interest of this specific child. And sometimes we have a conflict of interest, but I need to know before I take a decision, what is the best interest of this child? It's the same in a classroom, a student. We have to go beyond a group of children and look into the specific uh, best interest of a child. So that is also, um, that is also fundamental. And then the fourth one, which we already talked about, uh, which is so fundamental, it is not you know, just a, a smart thing to do to listen to children. It's a fundamental right that the child has to be listened to. So it's non-discrimination, the right to survive and develop, the right to investigate what is the best interest for this specific child and to be listened to. These are the core uh, articles. Exactly. But Panilla, who, who wrote these articles and who decided that these four will be the main fundamental articles that we should absolutely look at in everything when, when we do everything? So, the, the, so when the leaders of the world, prime ministers of the world, and a few of them who took the lead, when they decided we, not, we don't only need a convention of human rights, we need a convention of children's human rights. Uh, so there was a dialogue between the political level, as it always is, and the world's leading child rights experts. So this was a combination of, that took several years to draft this convention. Uh, and it was, of course, important to make it um, not too attached to time, to make it outdated, but to make a convention which was fairly general but still specific enough uh, for as many situations as possible. So the best people on the planet in, on children's rights and the leaders of the world at those days that negotiated uh, the convention. Because I, what I was thinking, like, are we going to see a, a convention like 2.0, like an updated version? Because, you know, talking about technology, for instance, now we have 
everything's being updated like in, in, in two days, in one day, in a few seconds. So how is it when it comes to, to human rights and children's rights? Are we going to see an update on this? So I think for, for everyone who listens to this pod, I think first make sure that you have the Convention uh, of the Rights of the Child on your computer uh, at your desk there when you open up. But you also need to have uh, some additional annexes because almost every year, uh, the world's leading experts on children's rights, they add a guide on a relevant topic to decision makers. So that is, let's say, how we update the convention. And the last very important annex or a guide that was added was on uh, children and the digital world, children's rights in the digital world. Because of course they are the same when it comes to bullying, to respect a child's rights is exactly the same uh, when you go digital. But we, the adults and the decision makers, we have to be educated and have methods so we can take the rights of the child into the digital world. So to answer your questions, it's a constant update, not to the convention per se, but with additional help and support and methods in new areas. Mm. How much uh, UNICEF Sweden contributes to this work? So UNICEF, we have the mandate of United Nations, of Antonio Guterres in this time and days, to make sure that the countries, we have all the countries in the world, apart from the United States, who have signed the convention. And it's UNICEF's role to make sure that the countries live up to their uh, commitment. So UNICEF Sweden is screening and looking very carefully at the government of Sweden. And very soon there is a review almost between every four and five years, the representative of the Swedish government had to have to go to Geneva to the Committee of the Rights of the Child and be questioned, have a dialogue on how is it going for children in Sweden? How is the government, what is the government doing to make the rights come true? And UNICEF writes a shadow report with all the child rights organizations in Sweden. We write a child rights report of how we think it's going in Sweden for children. Yeah. Do you get blamed by UNICEF that are like, let's say there are problems in Sweden and the, the person from the Swedish government goes to Geneva and then be questioned. And then they see that Sweden is not really following the guidelines. Will you get blamed as they call it like Panilla? You're not really, UNICEF Sweden is not really doing the job or how is it like going? Like, Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I uh, and my team, we are doing everything we can to help the Swedish government deliver on children's rights. So every day when we have meetings or we write articles, uh, we meet with members of the Swedish Riksdag, uh, every day I'm trying to see what can we do to push things in the right direction. Um, but I only had this job now for one and a half years, so it hasn't happened yet. We will see if I get criticized uh, for not doing enough <laughs> the next time. It's actually in uh, it's actually in February next year that the Swedish government will be uh, will be having a dialogue. 
Yeah, and let's let me let me take you to to my arena to city planning because we 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 need your inspiration. We need your advice to us. So, like you know, in city development, I will be honest with you. Like we talk about how much money we can earn when we can when we do the planning, and it's almost about like calculating every single millimeter. So. Can we, when it comes to children, like, can we calculate the child aspect in city development, like how much money we're going to generate and so on? Or or what do you think? Well, I think it's it's this big general question of, of you know, what do we value? Uh, like, we know that the old, let's say, concept of GDP, which is kind of a way to value, doesn't value nature for instance, doesn't it, there is no price on pollution or didn't used to be a price. Uh, economy was judged to go better the more we consumed, nevertheless, never, you know, never mind the consequences. So, so I think a, a smart, modern, sustainable company uh, will go beyond uh, the established measurements of value. And first, you have to insert the long-term value of your investment. And I think if you insert the long-term value of your investment, children and young people will be included uh, because you will probably look at at climate, environmental aspects. So to insert a long-term value, and I think the other value is the well-being of people in a city. Uh, And I think we can measure this. I mean, we can measure how safe people feel. We can measure the the level of violence or accidents, uh, mental health. Uh, So I think think it's absolutely possible if you have a vision that goes beyond where we are today and you measure long-term benefits and you measure how you can influence the well-being of citizens. And I think also maybe closer to um, uh, a CFO in a company uh, because you don't want to make the wrong investment by not knowing what the citizens actually wanted uh, you to do. I know, for instance, at the Merg, uh, there is a big company who is going to rebuild a whole uh, area in Gothenburg, which is quite sort of socially deprived uh, and they talk to the children and young people living there before starting the project which means that now they're going to invest in things that their sort of clients actually wanted and not in something useless we adults thought they wanted so that is direct you know a better investment yeah but but, but Panela, why should we integrate or include children in the process, like in city development process? Because uh, children and young people live in the city. Uh, It's not only adults who lives in the city. And children and young people, they are experts on their needs and how they see the city or their neighborhood or their school building or playgrounds. And we need to talk to experts before we do something that concern these people. So we need the children and young people's expertise on their lives to do the right thing. And I also think that children and young people will help us think bigger because we adults can often get sort of stuck 
uh, in here and now and realities and children will make, help us you know go beyond uh, what we thought so it's a it's an innovative it's a strong innovative factor to involve children young people yeah i i totally agree with you i can like have a i have a reference from my like a project that i work with uh, we we do the dialogue with kids with children and in many times they open up a new ideas for us it doesn't mean that we are like not really good in thinking in urban planning absolutely not but every time they just open up like very interesting you know like aspect oh wow this is so interesting and this is like one of the benefits talking with with children but I, i'm also like want to ask you like when we talk with children like is 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 it something mandatory that we have to I mean, if you look at the Convention of the Rights of the Child, uh, the child has the right to be listened to in every question that concerns the child, which is, for instance, the physical environment. So it is the right of a child, but where children are not voters, let's say a child could not vote away a decision maker in a community because their voices wasn't heard heard. So it's for us, the adults, to help them make their rights come true. So it is a right. Uh, it is like we said, it's the smart thing to do if you want to be innovative, if you want to have a an investment which is solving the problem or creating the value that you try to do in this neighborhood. Uh, so it's both a right and it's smart. Um, and I would add I mean, democracy in general is quite under threat in the world right now. And especially with the pandemic, where a lot of authoritarian governments have kind of used uh, the closing down of cities, of also closing down a lot of young people's movements. They wanted to make their voice heard and they said, well, you know, you can't be here, you can't be there because it's, it's, it's a risk for, for contamination. Uh, and I think a lot of governments have sort of misused this, uh, this, this power. Uh, at least young people have felt that the democratic space is shrinking. So every time we give a child uh, the right to raise their voices and we actually listen, we don't need a fake conversation. Uh, we are also creating a strong, stronger citizen you know, a stronger citizens, a child ready to become an adult and take responsibility. The thing is that we, we plan cities for the future. And imagine like we plan cities for the future, but we don't raise up a healthy and like a very well-being uh, citizen. Imagine they, they don't feel good. They don't have a good physical health or mental health. So what kind of cities are we imagining or dreaming about? Yes, I mean, I think the concept that we have in UNICEF that we call child-friendly cities, there is no reason that not every child should be child-friendly. Why should they not? And when we build child-friendly cities, especially for the elder generation, it's often that generation that also really appreciate something which is child-friendly, is, is friendly for all, but maybe especially for older people who maybe also don't walk very well or bicycle very well and need some extra uh, security, exactly like the children. So we should, we should just do it. I mean, it's good here and now and it's good for the future. 
Mm. And you also, Penilla, you mentioned very interesting point that we should actually listen to to children. It's not about like letting them talk and that's it. Because also what I notice in some dialogues being done is just about, okay, let's do this, um, let's say public hearing or like children engagement, just in order to show that we did that. But actually, when you look at the, the reality, they're not really listening to children. So my question to you, how do we like really listen to children? Like what should we do? Yes, it's, it's, it's so important that it doesn't become like a fake, fake dialogue because the child will see through this immediately. Uh, so when we do it, we have to do it seriously. I mean, if I invite uh, 25 adults for a consultation and a round table, they rightfully expect to have about the same time to speak. They want to see a summary. They want to see what happens afterwards. And the children should be given, of course, the same and even more respect uh, during such meetings. And UNICEF launched just a couple of weeks ago, actually, a handbook uh, on, you know, to help us adults facilitate the process of making children participate, listen to the feedback, to have a safe environment. And once again, not every child want to express themselves in the same way. It has to be good for every children, not let's say only the A students who <laughs> we are interested in every child's voice. So sometimes it's better to write your views Sometimes it's better to use your appli an application on your mobile phone to reach out to, to many children. So it is not, it's, it's something we have to learn. It's a competence. And I think it's a competence that I hope more and more companies, communes and governments are going to want to have. Yeah. When you say we need to talk with every single child and every single child is special, this is going to be time consuming, which will cost a lot of money. How how do you look at this? Like, what is your reflections? Like, we have limited budget for, for a project. And if we're going to follow, like, every single guideline when we listen to kids, is this going to cost a lot? This question, I hear it a lot, to be honest, from companies around. So what, what do you what is your reflection? Well, I, I think that uh, we have to find smart ways to do it. But I mean, this is the same when we, we have to do, there is always a need to calculate the consequences for the environment, for climate. We don't question this anymore. We do it because we want to make sure that our project is sustainable when it comes to the environment. So we shouldn't question what we do in, our, in order to make our project sustainable, to make it socially sustainable. It is a part of the project. But then we should do it, of course, in the most clever way, uh, because children are also not interested in sitting hours and hours in sort of boring meetings. So we have to be very, we have to be very clever. And I think, for instance, now with um, the digitalization, uh, I think there are so many opportunities. And uh, I can tell you here, like a breaking news, that we will in Sweden very shortly introduce uh, a global instrument, uh, which we are using already in over 70 countries, which is called U-Report, uh, which is an application where we're going to ask children, would you like to help UNICEF uh, to report what's happening? 
uh, in your life, in your local community. Uh, and of course, together with companies, we could, you know, we could send out questions and ask, uh, what does it mean for you, for instance, uh, a child-friendly city? So I, I think absolutely we can do it, but of course there's gonna be some costs as it is for making sure that we are gender, uh, that we have a gender uh, equality in our projects, that we have an environmentally sound project, but also now that we actually have a socially sustainable uh, and fit for young people and the future project. And as we said before, I think you can take home, let's say, this investment very quickly. You say this budget thing is an excuse. You can always be smarter and, and, and make it smarter, like the way you talk with, listen to children and so on. No, absolutely. I think there, we just have to be more actors starting to do it. And uh, I talked to a few companies who've done it. And they are like, they, they can't believe why they didn't do it before. Because they rethought their project instead of investing in something that wasn't necessary. Often, let's say children, they are looking for very quite basic things. It's often us, the adults, who are overcomplicating issues. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say that it is more expensive. I would say that it is more sustainable and more cost efficient to involve children and young people if they are concerned about the project. Yeah, that's true. And and also like. The thing that like UNICEF gives handbooks about how we listen to kids, child-friendly cities initiative, and also like many authors write guidelines, how do we plan and design cities for children and so on. What I see like there is a lack of leadership because we have everything now. We have knowledge, resources, and so on, but we just need like this kind of brave leadership. What, what do you think? Like what kind of leadership do we need to make this happen? I now I I believe very much in partnership as a way to lead, and I think where I see uh, many interesting developments now is actually in the private sector, and if we can combine, let's say, the drive in the private sector uh, to make a profit or to to deliver the best possible services to their customers, if if the profit can be made better or bigger in doing the right thing, which I think is now what's happening. It's gonna happen by itself, but we need some front runners. We need some brave leaders in the private sector as well as in the public to show that it is actually working. Uh, so I just, I wanna, like you, I wanna help as much as I can the front runners to try to give them the data they need, the kind of guidance they need to look outside Sweden. There is so much happening on the globe. And UNICEF is a global organization. I can come with the best possible examples from all around the globe and bring home to Sweden. Because we do a lot of good things here, but in other countries or cities or regions, even more exciting things are happening right now. Do you think we have a great leaders here, like within this topic in Sweden? I think there is, I feel that there is a big interest, which is always a very good start, uh, that more and more people would like to cooperate with UNICEF, are interested in this, uh, which is a good start. And I'd like now to just say deliver what you or they need. So like you said, we have a global guide on child-friendly cities in English. And what we are doing now is to, 
to tr try to find uh, funding to make a Swedish adaptation of this guide. Because it has to be simple to do the right thing. It should be easy to do the right thing. And there I hope we can help as UNICEF. Yeah, and I think it is easy. Like, I will be honest, like, because also, like, in the beginning, when I started to work, I was not really doing so many projects of the child-friendly cities oriented project. But then when I started to do it, it's actually easy. It's much more easier than what we think. And I mean, for a city, if I was a mayor of, of a, a local uh, authority in Sweden, I mean, imagine just, let's say, the the branding of your city. I mean, who want to live in a child-friendly city who has this when you cross into the commune you say you know Ludvika a child-friendly city you will get more citizens you will have more taxes you can do more things so I think it's it should just happen I uh, we should we should at least do everything we can to make it happen and support uh, the front runners. Yeah, yeah. Then I wanted to ask you also, like from UNICEF Sweden points of view, how do we integrate the the, the convention in in the process, like in our process? What, how do we start? I think that um, uh, so I sometimes take the equal opportunities issue as an example. I mean, how we all of a sudden uh, realized that we can't just have statistics where we haven't divided it in gender because we had no data on women. And in order to do something, you have to make sure you have the data. So to mainstream an issue is to start with, you know, breaking it down into those categories now then under 18. How many children do we have in our commune? Uh, what age groups? Uh, and then collect data. So do like we did with equal opportunities. We would never have a meeting or a project where we didn't analyze the consequences for both men and women. It has become normal. When we do a budget, we do a gender budgeting. What is my budget going to do in terms of the women and the men in this country or in this uh, local authority? So it's really to, to realize I have a local authority with adults and children. Uh, what do I know about the children in my commune? How do I make sure that all the decisions I take also have a positive consequences for the children? Or at, at least they know the consequences of this age group. Because maybe sometimes you need to prioritize another group, but you need to know the consequences of closing schools, for instance, so you can adapt or support. Uh, so don't make it complicated. Do like we do on gender, like we do on, on environment. It has to be part of the beginning of a, a discussion. But how, like, how do we learn all of these different steps? Like, where can we find this kind of guidebook? Yes. So, so I mean, UNIF, UNICEF Sweden, we have, a, we have the project Child Friendly Cities. And we have a few, uh, I would call them hero local authorities in Sweden who has come along with UNICEF and say, I want to be a child-friendly commune, you know, help me. So we are working with communes and we are helping them with the methods. But the, it has to start, let's say, with the prime minister of the country or the prime minister of the commune saying, I want to do this. We say goodbye to a project leader down in the corridor who had a one-year contract to work on children, we have the mayor taking responsible, 
responsibility and inserting that project leader into the, to the main business, to the budget of the commune, to the strategic plans of the commune. And, and UNICEF, we are there to, to support and help. And, and also, let me say, many communes already do this. And I think they could be more vocal about it. What do they gain uh, how has it changed the way they work? How does it look like now in Sweden? Are there like really many cities or communes that child friendly or not yet? What is the like the situation? I mean, we in UNICEF, we started this pilot project is I think it's about two years ago now. Uh, so we only have a handful of commune who has gone through this project time or this sort of learning process. And we are now ready to scale up. So I think we UNICEF, what we have to do, we have to be ready to uh, scale up and make it more digital. Uh, so it becomes more easy. Uh, for a commune. So what we are doing now is we are evaluating. You always have to evaluate when you do something. What could we do better? What are the needs? What could we skip? Where should we focus our attention? So we are in this process of seeing how could we improve our support to make it easier for the communes. In Finland, I mean, over half the communes in Finland are child-friendly cities. Uh, I don't think we're that different uh, from Finland. Uh, and they went, you know, totally digital on this project. That's amazing. Like, let's say I am a city in Sweden. Does it cost me money in order to become like a child from the city? Like to ask for your guide, like from UNICEF Sweden? No, absolutely not. It's, it's, we just want your commitment that you want this for real. And I think for a commune who wants to implement Agenda 2030, you are already halfway there because... In Agenda 2030, uh, there is already an article that you have to solve things in partnerships. And children and young people are very important stakeholders and partners in realizing Agenda 2030. So I think if you add the child rights dimension and you have Agenda 2030, you know, you're going to have a fantastic strategy for your commune. Yeah. So uh, Agenda 2030 is not like something different from the, the convention like it's not about should i work with this or with this no i think you have to have both those documents in your mind because agenda 2030 in agenda 2030 we have almost all of the children's rights the right to clean you know to a clean environment the right to education the right to life without violence as we have in the convention but the wonderful thing with agenda 2030 is that we have a deadline there it's actually said in Agenda 2030 that before 2030, every child should grow up in an environment without violence. And we have the article in the convention. So use the Agenda 2030 as your roadmap to realize the convention. Exactly. Do you believe that we're going to achieve the goals in Agenda 2030? I think that we right now are in a very crucial year in 2021. And we there, there is no limit to what we can do now. If you consider all the uh, investments which are being done with public money and private money, I mean, we have never seen so such large investments globally uh, in this project, what we call sort of build back better. 
if we use those investments in a smart way, we could absolutely build back a better world for children. But right now, I don't have the exact figure, but when UNICEF look at all these available investments, very few percent, not even 2%, are invested in people under 18. That, would, that is the education system, for instance. So I believe we can, but then we have to look careful at our investments, that they don't meet only one goal of getting more people back into work and, and fight poverty. But we, at the same time, we have to make sure we are doing a sustainable investments for people and planet. Why do you think we don't do this kind of investments? Is it like a lack of knowledge, leadership? Are we afraid of something? Why do you think so? I mean, I Are wish we... you and I could collect the leaders of the world and you know, talk <laughs> about that question. Because I, I really would like to, I would very much like to understand. Uh, but I think one part of this is this short economic cycles that we have uh, of an immediate, let's say, return of investments that we have trouble with our system to get value or voters votes for these longer term investments and visions. Uh, so there is something there in the way we calculate uh, value and return of investments. And then the second thing I do, I think it is connected to that we don't hear the voice of the, the citizens of the future. Uh, I sometimes wonder what would happen if we would lower the, the voting rights at least to 16 so that we would actually have children who are also voters. Would that change something? Uh, I don't know, but at least we, we know that children think long-term per definition. I mean, they have to think about getting a job, getting a family, the life. Yeah, exactly. When do you imagine that we are not going to think like this anymore? Like we're not going to think about this four years terms and this very short economical uh, revenue and so on. I mean, I um, I am very as a, as a, as a, as a, as a panilla, like as be a panilla. Yes. No, but I, I I have a few leaders that I see and I very much respect, and many of them are young leaders. But actually, also the leader of UNICEF Global, uh, Henrietta Four. I mean, she's over seventy-five, and that doesn't stop her from having almost like crazy visions. Uh, you know, she can really reimagine a totally different world for children. And she's heading the largest child rights organization in the world. And I know that she has a lot of connections and, and a big network. And um, maybe it's naive, but I'm, I'm hoping that UNICEF Global can be a game changer in, in, in changing the future, and especially by letting uh, children and young people's voices be part of our voice. Uh, we are doing a child, you child summit towards the end of the year, you know, kind of a divorce, but with children. And hopefully, I mean, a lot of the adults are parents or grandparents, and hopefully we can sort of come to our uh, senses. Mm. Or what is UNICEF's challenge when it comes to spread the knowledge about implementing the convention? What, what are the challenges that you're facing? 
I think that UNICEF can become even better in, in sharing data and making data accessible, uh, almost like you know, an immediate level, so that people can see the difference that we make in children's lives by investing in clean water, uh, by building toilets in a school so that girls will come to school even when they have menstruation. I, I, would, I wish that more people can see the difference that you make, even let's say with a hundred crowns or by changing the policies of your company. Uh, for instance, letting parents have more leave with their child and what a difference that makes in the world. Uh, when some Swedish companies take the lead on parental leave and how that sort of trickle down. So I think what we have to do, uh, especially in these times, we have to show the results. And until this year, UNICEF every year has been able to show that we are making every child surviving, more children surviving the five year, more children going to school, thanks to people who are ready to invest and engage uh, in children. And you mentioned also like many people uh, or companies or municipalities reaching out to UNICEF. I'm wondering like how big is the team in UNICEF Sweden? Like, Yeah, well, we are, we are uh, 60 uh, people. Uh, we, have a, uh, we had a result last year of, of 700 million. So I don't think we are too many people for the, <laughs> for the uh, <laughs> turnover that we managed to do. Um, we have excellent people. I think, uh, I mean, what we are doing now together at UNICEF Sweden is that we are making our organization an even more modern digital organization. We are opening up our office spaces for other partners to sit with us. Uh, I mean, I want to be the preferred partner uh, if you want to work on children's rights. And for that, I also need to adapt and we need to adapt to give the partners also what they need. So um, I think we are in a good place not right now. We are changing, it's always a little bit hard, uh, but we have to do it because the world is changing and the children need our uh, engagement and efforts even more. Yeah, and I, I'm actually interested in asking you, what did you learn like as a leader from the COVID? I think we, we, we learned so many things, but I think actually my first, happy, uh, let's say, experience is that even if, if people uh, in Sweden, many individuals had a very hard time losing jobs, losing parents, uh, being nervous about their own health, having children isolated in their rooms, not going to school, not me meeting friends, we could still see the individual engagement going up. So I think what, what we learned and what many people learned is that it is really true that we cannot be safe until everyone is safe. I, I think that this is beyond everything else, the most important lesson. And I just hope that we don't forget that when we now get our vaccination and going back perhaps to a little bit more of a normal life that we're not there yet millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world are not safe yet. So if we can keep this, you know, extreme experience of something happen far away, affecting myself, 
I mean, this is how the world is, is now. So I think keep that thought. You're not safe until everyone is safe and we need to sort of team up uh, to solve it. And I think the other lesson is that because of digitalization, uh, we don't need to have small meetings. We don't need to have a few lucky ones going on a field trip uh, to Syria. You know, I can invite the whole world to a field trip to Syria now. I went to Bolivia last week on a digital field trip. It was amazing. I mean, so that is also a huge lesson that we can uh, we can use digitalization now to include more people and not to exclude. But was it like difficult for you as a leader to lead during the COVID compared to the pre-COVID? What is your experience? Was it like very tough? I think that uh, as a leader, it is uh, an asset. I, if you are, I think I, I, I'm quite an emotional uh, leader. Not that I so go crazy or cry every day, <laughs> but uh, let's say I, um, I have a lot of empathy. I am, um, I feel very much of, of what other people and, and what's happening. And I think that is difficult in a normal situation to take in. How is your team doing, really? And what is your team needing now, really? And I think I learned that that um, uh, competence uh, is, is a huge asset. I think the leaders who were quite hand, hand off have, have gone even further away from their team now. Uh, and I think then it's very difficult to lead. Uh, I think to try to connect as much as possible with your team. I think it is, it is, it was always necessary, and you had to work on that even more now. Uh, but I guess I, I learned that that is important, and even I have to do it even more. Yeah, very interesting reflections. And now I have like the last three questions for you. So the first question is going to be like, what keeps you motivated to do what you do? Like when you wake up every day? I mean, actually, first my own three children uh, and then all the children in, in my neighborhood. I started to give cookies to a few of them and I have like a long line outside my door. <laughs> I have to put a notice now, don't knock because I'm, I'm doing something. But let's say, so the children near me and, and then uh, all the children, I mean, Children are amazing. It's amazing how much a child can survive and still become a fantastic adult. I mean, children are resilient. Children are innovative. Children are amazing. And we have to take care of them so that they become their best possible me. So definitely children. And in addition to that nature, I mean, that's where also where I go to we recharge uh, nature is, is is so important that's amazing and if you talking about nature if you were an animal which animal would you like to be and why <laughs> but this was about this is about <laughs> one of the most difficult questions i just sent for today <laughs> i mean of course i couldn't think about almost any animal but but <laughs> I talked to a few colleagues as well, and I tried to, so, so I come, you know, today I would say a squirrel, you know, those tiny brown reddish squirrels, 
that goes up in the trees outside my house here. I mean, they have, they are, you know, they don't make, people are not afraid of them, but they can go anywhere and they mm. find a little way up and through uh, the forest and up through the woods. Uh, so I think that's that's a little bit me trying to find a way. <laughs> Uh, hopefully not looking so fearful, but can still reach <laughs> up. <laughs> but then the other animal was, then I think it's squirrels. They seem to be quite lonely. I mean, I, I never see two squirrels. But I'm a very social person. So I'm thinking maybe also there is some kind of ant and oh, yeah. uh, mm. gene in me. I like with a lot of people in a big, you know, ant house. Team working, uh, team working <laughs> yeah. also. Yes, keep working and working hard. <laughs> That's very interesting. I actually didn't expect that you're gonna answer with these two kind of animals. <laughs> will will you change animals like in the future, or will you stay these two? I mean, sometimes you think maybe I mean, you know, maybe I should be a lion or more the more classical ringly like whoa, you know, be afraid of me and do what I say. But so far in my life, I felt that I've come further by building relationships, friendships, networks, partnerships. Uh, so I, I'm more of a leader in groups than by, yeah. by fear. <laughs> yes, and I, I, I can truly see that also. So the last question is going to be that you give us three takeaway messages to the listeners. So the first one is to, for us adults to actually remember who we were when we were children, to remember the dreams that we had, that nothing was impossible. I could be anything. A, a house could look like, you know, there is no, you know, a ch for a child, a house can be anything or a city can be anything. So first, remember your dreams and continue to dream especially important now when we're going to build back so much better uh, and the second would be to listen to children and to really listen because they have something important to say to you uh, and make it easy for children to make their voice heard and for every child for the the, ch the child with disabilities for the child who is not used to speak uh, for the child who's not come to a meeting, you have to go and find the child. Uh, and it's their right. You're going to make a smart decision. And it's part of building uh, democracy. And third, uh, remember that we are adults. It is our responsibility, not only to protect children, but to invest in children. That would be my three. Yes, thank you so much. Very powerful takeaway messages. And thank you again for being here and recording one more episode to Urbanistica podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me and thanks to everyone who, who has been listening. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.